0: Hey guys, Jim Siegler here again for Brainwaves. Before we get started today, a quick word about the podcast. We've had over 50 unique contributors who've helped put together their own episodes and review content for us for the podcast, and we're still growing. There have been tens of thousands of downloads in the last year since we started as a small time educational program based out of Philadelphia. So if you haven't already, let us know what you think of the show by rating us on iTunes and Stitcher and whatever other podcast medium you use. We really appreciate it. Last week, we talked a bit about neurostimulants, and in particular, caffeine. As a promoter of wakefulness, a stimulator for attention and learning, and as a supplement for athletes, caffeine and other neurostimulants have enormous potential for occupational use, and not just personal use. In this week's episode of Brainwaves, I'll speak with Dr. Anjan Chatterjee, author of Neuroethics and Practice and the Aesthetic Brain. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chatterjee.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me here.
0: Did you know that you have a Wikipedia page?
1: Uh, I did know that. Uh, The last time I looked, which was a while ago, it was kind of out of date. It's a few years old in terms of the information in there, but I did know I had a Wikipedia page.
0: I think that's so cool that you have your own Wikipedia page, you know, along with all the presidents of the United States and famous athletes and all that stuff.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs)
0: So, from your Wikipedia page, and from what I've learned about you over the last three years we've known each other, I know that you specialize in neuroaesthetics and cosmetic neurology. Without getting into too much detail here, what is cosmetic neurology?
1: So, to be clear, people should know that I'm a cognitive neurologist, and a lot of my research is also on spatial cognition and language. But to the question of cosmetic neurology, it's one aspect of neuroethics in general. And it's basically the idea that one can start using neurotechnologies to enhance normal cognition and emotion uh, rather than simply treat disorders. So the analogy is from cosmetic surgery, as you can imagine, right? So surgeons will Uh, develop reconstructive surgical procedures. This was actually a lot of it for for facial reconstruction was developed in the First World War. And since then, it started to get used to actually uh, enhance how people look when they don't have any particular facial disease or trauma or disfigurement. So analogous to that, uh, cosmetic neurology is to enhance people who do not have a problem with their cognition, at least a problem in the way we think about it, Uh, with people that have diseases. In some senses, it's similar. It's similar that you might take a system like attention and try to improve it, uh, regardless of whether someone has attention deficit disorder or is otherwise in the normal distribution of their attentional abilities. Where things differ, I think, has more to do with the ethical implications of either practice. That's where I think the The enhancement versus treatment distinction really starts to come into focus.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point. And I I bring that up because I think there is enormous potential for not just conditions like ADHD, like you mentioned, but for people who are willing to just improve themselves. And to kind of bring everybody up to speed on this, some sort of pharmacologic enhancement has been used in a number of storylines and movies and uh, books uh, that you may have read Notably, Lucy, which stars Scarlett Johansson and Morgan Freeman, features a character who is exposed to a psychoactive drug that increases Scarlett Johansson's character's neurologic potential. Limitless with Bradley Cooper is another perfect example of this. Both of the movies actually rest on the premise that only a fraction of the brain is accessible to most people, and some fictional drug can unlock the potential of the remainder of the brain. Equilibrium, Minority Report, and Pitch Black for Vin Diesel fans, these are also movies that come to mind which a character uses a psychostimulant in order to improve their mentation or motor function. Um, You can imagine I've watched a lot of this sci-fi action-filled kind of crap. But really for people like you and me, where is the controversy and the ethics of making somebody who's healthy better as opposed to somebody who is sick and making someone healthier?
1: Uh, Thanks for that question. It's a really important question. And Largely, the ethics boil down to around four broad categories. So the first is generally safety. So, for example, if you have something horrible like uh, glioblastoma multiform, most people are willing to take on a treatment that might have significant side effects because the alternatives are so, so dismal. Uh, But, in the case of someone who is otherwise completely healthy, if there are potential side effects, uh, the question arises, uh, what level of risk is worth the potential benefit? So that's one issue. Uh, The second is one of character. And this is something in the early 90s, there was a presidential bioethics report on enhancement and it was a fairly conservative panel, and they were really concerned about this of is it the case that using these kinds of enhancements actually erodes people's character, a kind of you know the inverse of no pain, no gain, uh, you know, if you don't have any pain in trying to acquire information or you minimize the pain, do you erode people's character? The third issue is one of distributive justice. And there the concern is that since these medications cost money, might it be the case that only people who have wealth and access to resources get to use it? And if they, in fact, help people, uh, you have a situation where people who already have privilege and advantage end up having even more so uh, because of availability of these kinds of uh, medications. And then finally is one of coercion which is that something might start out as a choice, but over time might create a situation where people feel either forced uh, because of the environment they're in or explicitly uh, coerced uh, by others to take these medications where the demand is, it's not just that you can choose to make yourself better, but you have to make yourself better.
0: And I think that that really segues nicely into the next subject, which is that there is true precedent for this type of intervention, at least neurologically speaking.
2: In 2002, as an example, a trial was conducted among Navy SEALs in which trainees were randomized to caffeine or placebo. The outcome results were obvious. As you would expect, SEALs who received caffeine performed better on cognitive assessments testing psychomotor vigilance which is defined as the ability to recognize and respond to rare but critical stimuli. Caffeine also improved reaction time and memory without adverse consequences or impairment in marksmanship, a military task that can be affected by the tremor induced by caffeine.
0: So since that study, and even before then, a number of similar investigations have been published, which evaluate caffeine use in the military. Most are positive, as you'd expect, favoring the caffeine or an alternative neurostimulant, And I think the results are pretty compelling. But say a study is published that indicates Marines who engage in combat while on caffeine are more likely to survive or by whatever means can save the other Marines from dying when compared to Marines who do not use caffeine. Is it justifiable then to mandate caffeine use among soldiers who go to war?
1: I think the issue is mandate and that it's worth stepping back a little bit and even providing some cultural context that we think caffeine is completely innocuous, but there have been different points in time where caffeine was banned. So in the 16th century in Mecca and in Italy for times it was banned, in 17th century in Constantinople, in 18th century in Sweden and Prussia, and for a variety of different reasons. So while it's completely accepted now in most of our cultures, there have been times when it hasn't been. I think the issue is mandating, uh, and the question of whether you can require someone uh, to take uh, something like caffeine or other drugs, my understanding is that the armed forces does right now provide packaged caffeine uh, in massive quantities, uh, I don't mean massive quantities for the individual, but, but it's widely available for our military personnel uh, to be used as they see fit.
0: Yeah, and so I think it is a nice thing to have as an option, like you said, not to necessarily mandate it because of the ethics reasons you kind of pre-specified. And caffeine is relatively innocuous at lower doses, uh, especially when used in these clinical trials or retrospective studies. I guess it wouldn't surprise the listeners to know that the use of psychostimulants in the U.S. military, particularly for amphetamines, dates back to as early as World War II, not just for the U.S., but for other countries and especially in Germany.
2: Amphetamines, which act somewhat similarly to caffeine—technically, their mechanisms are different—these drugs were sanctioned for official use by the Strategic Air Command in 1960 and the Tactical Air Command in 1962. Amphetamine pills, affectionately known as GO pills, had been provided to U.S. Air Force pilots in Vietnam, Operation Desert Storm, and Operation Enduring Freedom, which included bomber missions that lasted up to 44 hours for some pilots. The missions likely were impossible without the use of amphetamine stimulants, and pilots overwhelmingly reported these pills to be either beneficial or even essential. Although they were not technically required, 50 to 90 percent of combat air patrol pilots reported using these psychopharmacologics.
0: In the absence of amphetamines, pilots not infrequently reported falling asleep during long flights and missions which could have most certainly impacted their survival and the success of these missions. According to a formal report by Andrew Meadows, who's a pharmacologist and a major in the U.S. Air Force, non-pharmacologic strategies such as limiting time on task, rest breaks, and adequate pre-mission sleep, while somewhat effective, may be impractical or impossible given the operational demands. This is what Dr. Chatterjee had to say on the matter.
1: The idea of using stimulants uh, in the armed forces has been around for a while, as you've talked about, and tends to be quite controversial. In some ways, it's controversial because people are concerned about what it might do to people's judgment and whether it interferes with a kind of response inhibition where people might be more quick to react when what you might want someone to do is to inhibit a response. And this was brought into particular uh, focus in an incident called the Tarnak Farms Incident, in which uh, there was a, a tragedy that happened on the basis of friendly fire. Where
0: uh, I think. What well, Dr. Chatterjee is referring to here as the Tarnak Farm Incident took place in 2002 during the war in Afghanistan, where two American F 16 pilots were returning from a 10 hour night patrol mission. The pilots, Majors Harry Schmidt and William Umbach of the U.S. Air National Guard, descended upon a ground-based combat zone, where Schmidt voiced concern that this force was attempting surface-to-air fire against the two pilots. This area, which was near Kandahar, Afghanistan, was known to have been occupied by Taliban forces recently, and the pilots had been briefed on this matter before their mission. Despite warnings from Umbach that the forces may have been friendlies, Schmidt felt he and Major Umbach were being fired upon, and responded using lethal force. It was only seconds later that both pilots were informed that these ground troops were actually Canadians and that the Canadians had been authorized to conduct a live fire exercise in that area. Four were killed and eight were wounded in the friendly fire incident. In an official press briefing, Lieutenant General Michael DeLong did not make any mention of stimulant use when outlining the root causes of the incident. The board found the cause of the friendly fire incident to be the failure of the two pilots to exercise appropriate flight discipline which resulted in a violation of the rules of engagement and inappropriate use of lethal force. board further found Major Harry Schmidt, the pilot responsible for making the decision to fire upon the Canadian forces, issued an official apology to the families of the four soldiers who had died. His words were, Finally, I would like to tell the families of Sergeant Ledger, Corporal Dyer, Private Green, and Private Smith that I am deeply sorry for what happened. I will always regret what happened that night."
2: Probably because of events like these, many of which had preceded Tarnak Farm, the U.S. Air Force officially rescinded their approval for aviation operations in 1996. By 2001, The U.S. Air Force ultimately re-approved their use because of the overwhelmingly positive subjective and objective responses to amphetamine use among aviators, although with more stringent criteria for distribution. This re-approval was only one year before the Tarnak Farm incident, where Majors Schmidt and Umbach had received and used their GO pills for the 10-hour overnight mission. Despite the fact that Schmidt and Umbach testified that their use of amphetamines had affected their judgment the two boards of inquiry, one American and one Canadian, refused to formally acknowledge that psychostimulants could have impacted their decision making.
1: More generally, it's worth thinking about the context, which is that uh, people might be on long flights and need to stay awake. Uh, Sometimes personnel get separated on the ground uh, and have to try to survive on their own. And in each of those instances, vigilance, of course, is really critical. And so one might argue that there are ways in which in those situations these stimulants might have a role in the survival of these particular individuals.
0: Earlier you mentioned that caffeine has a long history of of use and abuse in the world, not just the United States, Um, and we've mostly been talking about amphetamine use as go pills in the military but today, because of our social mores or accessibility or the, you know the abundance of caffeine in all kinds of products, would you think it's not more prudent for the Air Force to offer you know the, their pilots some sort of caffeinated beverage um, or a caffeine pill instead of an amphetamine?
1: Well, I think they do uh, make those available, so I think that is there. The desire is to find medications that are more effective, that last longer and have fewer side effects, Um, you know, and that's the goal of people who treat these kinds of disorders of either attention or vigilance or the effects of sleep uh, deprivation. That's everybody's goal. And so I think they would like such medications to be developed and they almost certainly will be in the near future as we continue to do research on these systems uh, and develop the pharmacology to treat those systems
0: the debate for these and other non-pharmacologic interventions like improving sleep quality and requiring that you know pilots and other you know occupational workers have you know more sleep at home and more time away from work and there's no doubt that this kind of dilemma the dilemma of improving alertness of people whose fatigue could result in devastating consequences consequences it might spill into other occupational disciplines you know take for example you and i as medical professionals Do you think it's possible that on call physicians who are working for 24 hours or more be offered some sort of a go pill one of these days?
1: Yeah, so that's a question I raised as a hypothetical in the first paper I wrote about this in 2004. And it fits along with the military as an example of a a broader scenario in which you ask the question is there a greater good that outweighs? an individual person's civil liberties. Right, that's what you're saying, is can you mandate one person doing something even if they would prefer not to because the overall benefit outweighs uh, that kind of respect for a person's autonomy. Also, uh, whether drugs like modafinil which in the laboratory does show that minimizes errors that people make uh, when they're sleep deprived. Should residents be encouraged or required to use such medications? And if you're a resident or your physician, you might listen to this with horror. But if you turn it around and say, if it's your child or your spouse or your parent who's in the hospital, Would you want uh, someone who's sleep-deprived to be taking such a medication, even if the risks are very, very small, that they might make an error? Uh, Because if, regardless of how small the risk is, if the risk hits your family, it's very, very big to you. Uh, My own bias is to think that it makes me very uncomfortable to think that we might mandate uh, or require residents to take such medications rather than try to introduce other structural changes, whether that's being restricting hours or having other physician extenders to mitigate the situations in which people would be vulnerable to making those kinds of errors.
0: So when you posed that question in your 2004 paper, is that kind of what your answer was at the time? or? What would you tell a resident or a hospital if you were asked to formally advise them on this policy?
1: Uh, My own sense is I would say that I do not think we can require residents to take these kinds of medications. Now, mind you, we require people to do all sorts of things that are not healthy for them, right? It's not healthy to stay awake for 24 hours every fourth night for a year, right? So the precedent of requiring people to do things that are not good for their health Yeah, we've already crossed that threshold. Having said that, I don't think we need to force people to do things that they're not comfortable with. Uh, And this is where I do think whether restricting hours, hiring more people, whether it's other healthcare professionals, if you can't afford to have more residents, to try to maintain the quality of care of patients without disrupting or undermining uh, people's individual autonomy there's a cultural shift where people have been used to either using or being around people who use stimulants through high school, through college, that it has, in some sectors, become quite normalized, and once they get into the workforce, it doesn't feel all that different. And so, to me, this is a question that might, for people at your generation, and the few people I've talked to informally, uh, seem to have I have less of an issue with it than most people around my age, uh, which is in the mid to late 50s. Uh, most people my age seem to have uh, have uh, some discomfort with this idea.
0: I mean, I think I could probably handle it. I have this unrequited love for caffeine. Yes. Uh, but I guess, I guess I can't speak for my friends, though.
1: Would you be okay with being required to take modafinil the day after call?
0: I've never tried modafinil. I don't know how it would affect me, Mm -hmm. but it would make me a little bit nervous to be forced to doing something. But, you know, exactly like you said earlier, we've had a long-standing history of, you know, enforcing unhealthy behaviors among, you know, resident physicians and other occupational, you know, workers, whether it's from sleep deprivation or the types of food and when you can eat foods uh, while you're working in the hospital and that kind of thing. So it's not just regarding alertness and attention and um, patient care delivery, it also extends into other domains as well. Right. That's all we got for the show this week. I'd like to thank Dr. Anjan Chatterjee for being on the show with me today and for walking me through cosmetic neurology. You can learn more about everything we discussed today in his two books, Neuroethics and Practice, and the Aesthetic Brain. And in the summary, we post on our website with every episode at brainwaves.me. The music this week was courtesy of Kai Engel and Peter Rudenko. I'd also like to thank Erica Mejia for her assistance in the production of this episode. Me, 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 me,
2: me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As always, we'd love to know what you thought about our show, so you can follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Brainwaves Podcast, or just rate us on iTunes or whatever other podcast medium you use. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for listening.